Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. Thank you very much for listening today. Every other week, I interview chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their secrets behind the scenes. I want to know what compelled them to become a chef or a bartender. I want to learn everything about their creative process and discover the unknown ingredients that are finding their way in their drinks and dishes. Today is episode number 11. And as usual, you can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. My guest today is Chef Bonnie Morales, owner with her husband of the restaurant Kashka in Portland, Oregon. They serve food from the former Soviet Union. She is the first generation American and daughter of Belarusian immigrants, and she grew up in Chicago. She has received a lot of awards, and the last in dates are um, the finalists of the James Beard Award Foundation for the Best Chef of the Northwest Region in 2018, and then the Rising Star Award from Star Chef in 2018. Uh, hi, Chef, and welcome to Flavors Unknown. I'm really excited to have you on today. Oh, thank you so much. Hello. I want to start first by really setting the record straight with Kashka because it's not per se a Russian restaurant. So can you explain a little bit the, the nuances which is really rooted in history and I have to say in geography as well? It's complicated. The, my parents, so Kashka is really, um, it's food that I, rooted in food that I grew up eating. And so that means following sort of my, my family history and my parents immigrated from the Soviet Union in uh, 1980, and I was born the year after. So I, I grew up speaking Russian first. When they left in 1980, they left something called the Soviet Union, which no longer exists. But physically, they were in what is now known as Belarus, and which really wasn't an, its own independent country until very recently. So the, you could say that they're Belarusian, but they never in their time could have called themselves Belarusian or would have called themselves Belarusian. And then to further complicate it, they are Jewish. My family, I'm Jewish. In the Soviet Union, that was considered to be a nationality. So even if you were living in a place called Belarus that was the Soviet Union, you were none of those things, you were Jewish. Just that one little piece of the story, it makes it very complicated to say, what am I? You know, <laughs> And so what is the food that I'm cooking? And then, um, and then if you look at it, you know, from a, a larger perspective of the of the Soviet Union as a whole, I mean, every there's so much cross pollination across all of the republics. So, you know, something like uh, little fish from the Baltic Sea from Latvia, you see those jarred and used all over. The, you know, in in basically Central Asia, and so there's so much back and forth that you know that adds a layer as well. So, you know, my parents in that time they were cooking, you know, a little bit of Georgian, a little bit of Azerbaijani food a little bit of Latvian and, and Ukrainian, and not, nobody really had a name for it because it was all the Soviet Union. So that's kind of what Kochka is rooted in, is that mashup. And can you explain like the choice of the, the name of the restaurant, Kashka? It's obviously an homage to your grandmother, 
But at the same time, I mean, it's a very emotional story and definitely, yes, the story of your family. My grandmother was uh, escaping a ghetto in during uh, in October during World War II, and she left in the middle of the night. The following day, everyone in the town and her fam, all of her family were killed, and she made her way towards Russia from Belarus, sort of going away from where German occupation was, and But, you know, there's still what they call town wardens, Stavista in Russian. Along the way, they're basically German-appointed Russians that, you know, make sure that everything's how they want it to be. And one of these Stavista caught my grandmother along the way and accused her of being Jewish. And she said, no, no, I'm not. I'm Ukrainian peasant making my way. That was her story. She was a Ukrainian come, trying to get to her in-laws in Russia. And they said, well, if you're Ukrainian, then how do you say duck in Ukrainian? In Russian, it's utka. So they said, how do you say utka in Ukrainian? Of course, she doesn't know Ukrainian. She's, she spoke Yiddish at home and maybe knew a little bit of Belarusian, but really everyone there spoke Russian besides Yiddish. So, But she took a stab at it, hoping that maybe the Yiddish word was the Ukrainian word because there was a little bit of overlap. And so she said, Kachka. And um, it turned out that that was right. And they, he let her go. Um, it turns out that Kachka is actually the word for duck in, in Ukrainian and Belarusian and Yiddish and, and Polish, probably in other languages as well in that, in that region, but it's not in Russian. And so that story is just one of many stories in, in my family of like her surviving and other people surviving. And, and that became really important to me to honor. And that word just seemed like a great linchpin for that. But I feel like it's also a great way to honor every family's stories. Everyone, every family has suffered somewhere along the way or overcome hardships. And, you know, for, so for me, it's just this one way to, to sort of like remember that. And how old was your grandmother when it happened? I don't know the exact age, but she was, uh, she was probably 20. Yeah, very young. She had a three-month-old child with her who she ended up burying along the way who didn't survive so young very young i i can't even imagine having a child at that age let alone trying to navigate that situation and it's hard to think about you know the instincts that take over and what you do to survive and it's really amazing yeah and i was uh, a part of the journey the journey continued after that of course oh, yes. you know that yes she ended up going on to fight in the partisan resistance and being a critical part of her group. And so um, I'm, I'm very proud of her, you know, and I never got a chance to meet her. She died. Uh, when my parents immigrated, I, I believe she was, it was four years after they immigrated. So it was still the Soviet Union. So there was no, my, my parents obviously couldn't go back and she had fallen ill. Her, both my grandfather and grandmother on my father's side uh, passed away from cancer and within a month of each other, two months of each other or something. So yeah, I was only four years old though. So I never, never met them. I guess as a, a first generation of American, you started to kind of reject like the, the food that you grew up with. Can you walk us through how you rediscover the food that your parents were serving? And I read that your husband or your future husband at that time played a specific role in that story. So yeah, just as you said, I... Um I grew up really being pretty embarrassed of the food, not really wanting anything to do with it and wanting to, I, I wanted, you know, hamburger helper and all the things that my, my friends were eating at home. And really? uh, <laughs> I thought it was like the coolest thing, all the stuff at the grocery store that was pre-made, you know, it was like 
more expensive. And we've never had any of that at home. Everything my mom made was obviously from scratch because it was cheaper at the time. You know, as a kid, you think that it's, you think that it's not as good, but it's crazy because that's, that's so much of that stuff is, is garbage. Yeah, that's what I wanted as a, I wanted what all my friends had, which is normal, you know? And anyway, yeah, my, my husband now, my, when we were dating, I, yeah, I brought him over to my parents' house, just, you know, normal sort of stuff. And I, I, whenever I had any friends or a boyfriend or anything coming over to my parents' house or any sort of like family party, I always gave them a warning of, it's going, the food is going to be really strange. You're not going to like it. I'm sorry. You might want to, you know, you might want to come fed. So I gave him all those same sorts of warnings. And then afterwards, he, you know, we were in the car driving back and he just stopped and was like, that was amazing. I loved everything so much. It was delicious. And I loved, you know, the way everyone ate together and sort of the, the camaraderie and how it all went down and, and the food and everything. And he was just sort of smitten. And yeah, so that the first few times that he would say stuff like that, I just assumed he was saying it to, you know, you know, make nice. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he just, that just kept happening. And anyway, he, my mom caught wind of this and she started getting really excited. He would ask her questions about things and she started inviting us over for dinner just because she was whipping up some dish that she hadn't made since since before they immigrated, you know, so she, he basically sort of lit this fire in her and then in, in me too, to sort of reevaluate and rediscover what I just took for granted for so long. And that's definitely, that definitely changed just the way my perspective on it altogether. I would say I had a, a sort of a paradigm shift of what this food means. Yeah, it's all because it's all because of that. I definitely even I remember, you know, being in culinary school, for example. So, you know, as a young adult and, you know, you have to do this like project designing a restaurant concept. And so I thought just for sort of for fun, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll do a Russian restaurant. And so I had this I wrote this menu. I had this logo and everything picked out that was like, whatever. It was it was a fun project. And then when I wrote the menu, everything that I did to it, all the dishes that I put on it were so apologetic. It was like, I would take a Russian dish and then just change all the techniques to French, you know, or something like that, where it was just, it was just so respectful to what the cuisine does. You know, for example, there's something called chaladiets, which is like a, a meat aspect, like a cold jelly meat dish. And there's no clarification process. You're not supposed to clarify. You're not supposed to make a consomme and then add gelatin, which is how you would do it if you were making, you know, a, a French aspect. It's very, very rough and it's meant to be rough. So like, but in my vision, like, oh, that just because it's, it's rough and more simple, it must be worse. So I would like, I spent all this time, I remember this moment, I spent all this time like making this, you know, this dish in aspic where it was supposed to be this other dish called Adietz. And I, I spent days making it and the finished product when like I, you know, I sat down and ate it with my family, everyone was kind of like, that's okay. You know, because it <laughs> lost so much of its character. And I think I just, I just didn't understand. I just assumed that it was wrong because it was Russian. That's something that has changed in me since that's something that my husband's influence has done is I don't make the assumption anymore that just because it's Russian or whatever from the Soviet Union, that it's automatically worse or wrong in some way. You said you went to culinary school. So when was this spike in your brain to say that, you know, I want to become a chef? 
That's complicated. I mean, my parents owned a restaurant actually when I was younger. They opened a restaurant with their friends. It was a huge disaster. It was like basically everything you shouldn't do to open a restaurant. As a re- and I, I know I worked there, and so I, as a result of that, I think I had more telling me to not go down that path. And but so it just kind of happened anyway, though. So I, I went to college for um, product design for uh, industrial design, and um. I graduated from that and you know sort of got my my dream job in that industry. I, I was really interested in design research more than actual development. I was working at this design firm in in New York doing exactly that. I was sort of doing just the design research part of it, which was really rare to be able to get coming out of school. So anyway, it was just like this perfect job and I absolutely hated it in practice. You know, doing something in school, oftentimes it's just not the same thing in reality. And this is a perfect example of that. And I just hated it and I was miserable. But I I would walk through the Union Square Farmers Market on my way to my work. And I just, all I wanted to do was stay there and like just check out all, all the produce. I That was my first time really living somewhere and experiencing a, a real farmer's market. And that opened my eyes. And I, so anyways, I would, I would buy things all the time at the market and go home and make them. I remember I had this, or now it seems so silly, but at the time, um, Odo or what's Mario Batali's Enoteca that he had in New York at the time was like kind of new, but he had olive oil ice cream or olive oil gelato. And I remember like going home and wanting to make that. I made like, you know, I'd get basil from the market and make basil gelato, whatever. I just got so excited about the, this, like this, this way of cooking and, it sort of sparked this interest in me that I think that my parents having their own restaurant when I was younger has been, had basically suppressed. And so anyway, I quit my job and went to culinary school, which was probably, you know, a very like sort of rash decision, but I, I don't regret it at all. Yeah, obviously. And then in 14, you started Kashka. So I, I guess that uh, obviously you faced that a lot of the challenges that every, you know, one like, faces when they open like a, a, a restaurant. I'm interested to if there's anyone listening that is in this mindset and say, you know, I, that's what I want to do. I want to open a restaurant. So I want to understand the kind of challenges that you face. And then at the same time, I want to understand as well, if you had like additional challenges, because it, you're talking about opening like a, a, a Russian restaurant in, in Portland, and then probably there's a lot of people that were like, what are you talking about? What, what is that? You know, what kind of food are you going to make? Yeah, I mean, that definitely, and it sort of, we had that extra challenge. I mean, you could also say it's an advantage if you do it right. But the challenge of nobody knowing what you are, and why you should exist. And in fact, Russian food, a lot of cuisines might have sort of no, no people might have no knowledge of. But in many ways, that's better than what we are up against. Uh, people have a, a very negative connotation of Russian. They assume, they think of the, you know, food shortages and lots of spoilage. And they think of, you know, canned vegetables. I don't know. They, they think of very drab sort of, or no vegetables often. They think about like meat and potatoes and very limp vegetables. And I don't know, it's th- this picture that shows up in people's minds is just not positive. And so they think, why would I want to go to a Russian restaurant? We have people who, you know, will tell us that they had to like drag their friends in because they kept saying, no, no, I don't want to go there. And then they, sh- they come and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe I've, I haven't come sooner. That for us is certainly the biggest hurdle. You can also say that, like I said before, it's like, it can be an advantage because if you do it right, there's not a lot of competition directly in that way. I mean, we don't, there aren't any other restaurants that do what we do 
in Portland, I would say that at, at this time, I have yet to see anybody doing what we do in this country. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just more astounded by it, that there aren't more people representing the cuisine in the way that we are. And that's disappointing. And why Portland? Because, you know, you were, you were in New York and in Chicago. So why, why Portland? Well, I mean, that speaks to, you were asking before about general like suggestions for people opening restaurants. I mean, um, Portland's a much easier market to enter. It wasn't so strategic, but it is in reality, like a liquor license in Portland's, you know, under $500 a year. There's a lot of major markets, oh, wow. thousands <laughs> yeah. and thousands of dollars, you know, the rents versus other cities and all those sorts of, it makes it easier to be an actual, so like my husband and I are the only owners. We're the only people in the business. We don't have any partners. We don't have any investment firms. And so we don't have a bank. I mean, I guess we have a bank now, but there's nobody else that's calling the shots and telling us what to do. And that gives us a lot of uh, creative freedom. So it, it makes it, you know, <laughs> you have a lot of times when you have to have a partner who's not maybe a restaurant person, They'll come in and be like, you know what this place needs? We need a burger, you know, or something like that, where you and you have to kind of come to the table and have that conversation. And if that's not what's best for the restaurant to keep it true to itself, then you dilute it. So anyway, in Portland, it's just a lot easier. And so there are more places like us that don't have any big money behind it. It just keeps it more, I think, more fresh, more limber. So that's, I mean, that's something that makes Portland great. I mean, the other thing is the produce is amazing. There's a lot of really great forest product. You know, like the mushrooms out here are just phenomenal. I mean, you know, we supply the country's chanterelles and they're all here in our backyard. So they're pennies. I mean, right now you go to the grocery store, it's like $7.99 a pound for chanterelles. So it's just these beautiful, beautiful berries, all that kind of stuff. It just can't compete. I, I remember having a, a strawberry in Portland. I was out here for my brother's wedding. And having a strawberry out here and it just like that literally made me want to move here. It was that good. So, you know, that that's a big thing. And the, and, and the size of the city, the population makes it really sustainable. I have this like constant feeling that I live in, as part of a community. So, you know, I walk down the street and somebody honks their horn and it's, you know, this guy that used to be our general manager and he now owns his own metal shop and he does metal work for some of my friends. And then I turn the corner and it's our mailman and I know him because I see him all the time. And, you know, it's just like, it feels like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and everybody knows each other and it just makes it feel like you're part of something. Do you feel as well that the clientele is uh, more open to, you know, to like new type of food? I mean, you're, you are um, a, a city that has one of the highest density of food trucks, you know, in, in the country. So, and where in fact, there's a lot of different kinds of food being served and from different, you know, ethnic influence. So I definitely think it's related to the food trucks because, you know, you can, it's a low investment, low risk, right? So the people starting it, it's it's a lot, not a lot of cost up front, and so they can take a big risk. And then, as a as a customer, most food truck items are not more than ten dollars, and so it's a pretty low risk on your end if it's not very good. And so it encourages people to businesses and people to try things that maybe they wouldn't have. And so you have just so much knowledge as a result of it from the customer side of cuisines, of ingredients and things like that, that they probably wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, it totally makes them more willing to try something new. The one negative of that is that they're also very 
very quick to move on to the next new shiny thing because there is just such a high density of restaurants. So it's not all, you know, it's not all positives. There are, there is a negative step, but, but the fact that they're willing to come in and give it a try, even if it's a little bit strange, is definitely a huge win here in Portland. You guys didn't uh, go the uh, the food truck routes because you could have, but you you went directly with the brick and mortar and and open uh, you know Kashka. Opening a restaurant is obviously very stressful and and complex. So do you have any any tips? You know, it was like four years ago. Do you have any tips for for people that uh, may be interested in getting in the restaurant business? Don't I guess is a big one. You have to be crazy. You have to you have to really really want it. You have to love love what you do obviously um, it's a, not a new idea that you should have worked in restaurants that's definitely 100% true i also think that you have to really spend time understanding uh, so many different parts of it so one thing that works really well for my husband and i is that i've worked in the dining room and he has a culinary degree because we both know a little bit about each other's area it means that we can hone each other and that also that we have different parts of the business that are critical. So if we were both in the kitchen, I would feel a little uncertain. And it works for some people. I'm not saying it's wrong. But for us, I so often am thankful that I know that I can. I have an equal partner in the dining room that has the same vested interests. Because sometimes you see, you can tell like if both the partners are in the kitchen and there's not an equal weight in the dining room, that sometimes their message isn't being communicated the way that I think that they would want. And then if the person who owns the business doesn't have, they have a hired chef, you know, I think a lot of the times that translates to food and you don't see the same attention. Or maybe there's just a mismatch in concept, you know. The other thing is to not underestimate the personnel hiring and the people are so, I mean, it's, it's, it's an ongoing constant thing because you can't make, I mean, I guess you could make food with robots. Hopefully it won't end up there. As of right now, everything that happens in a restaurant is so high touch, requires humans. And we are complicated people. We are complicated, right? And everybody has different requirements and what makes them tick changes. And that's the most complicated and always changing ground. I know for me, when I thought about opening a restaurant, I didn't think about personnel. I thought about the menu, right? And training my cooks, let's say, and thinking about like sort of the parts of the restaurant that happen in that space and not about, you know, what happens in between. And it's just, you know, people have messy lives. You have to figure out a way to, to navigate that. I don't know. It's, it's, it's really interesting. I feel like I, I wear my, I have to wear an HR hat more and more now than I do like a, a chef hat, you know, as an owner, you, you do all of it. So I, I know about health insurance and I know about 401k plans and taxes and all of the things that aren't cooking. So let's focus a little bit on the food. You have, when you look at, you know, have a look at your menu, it's, uh, you have different sections. Can you describe a little bit uh, those different sections that you, you have there? Our menu focuses heavily on something called zakuski, which comes from the word zakusit, which means to bite after. And so these are dishes that are meant to be bites after drinking. And it's not the same as saying drinking food like I'm going to a bar. 
When Russians say zakusits, they mean like at the dinner table, like they're having a full meal. It's just that the majority of your time is spent on these zakuski. Like at, at somebody's home, you walk in and the table should already be full with dishes that are called, that there are these zakuski, these cold dishes. And you spend, everyone sits down and you spend like, I would say 75% of your time eating at this course. Um, there's a lot of toasting and drinking. And so anyway, as a result, our menu focuses super heavily on that. I think it's almost half of it is zakuski, maybe even more. And some key dishes, herring under a fur coat is something we're well known for. It's not something we created. It's a very classic Russian layered salad with uh, salt cured herring and some root vegetables and mayonnaise. We also have a smaller section of something called hot zakuski. And those are dishes that are they're usually things that involve dough in some way. But they're dishes that are kind of, they usually follow the cold zakuska table, but, you know, as a sort of a intermission, you know, somebody will pass around some stuffed buns with, you know, some hard-boiled egg and onion inside or something like that. So piroshki. Our hot zakuski change quite a bit. I would say one that we have on the menu quite often is called hachapuri. That's a Georgian yeasted bread with cheese. It's hard to explain only because it's so, there are so many different kinds of hachapuri. I know that there's one that people know pretty well because it's been popular lately. There's ajaruli, which is um, where it's a sort of eye-shaped and open. And there's like a, a egg and a pat of butter in the center. And that's one that's been photographed a lot and people know. But that's just one of dozens of kinds. Right now we're doing an Amarulian style one, which is like a closed hachapuri with some uh, smoked sulgumi cheese inside. And the dumplings are not part of that section, correct? Technically speaking, you could consider the dumplings to be types of, of hot Dope, as yeah. well. But we yeah, we focus on them so much that we have our own section for that. And that's definitely what we're probably most well known for. And that, I mean, and that was intentional. It's kind of what we focused on the most and what we wanted to be known for. Just because we think dumplings of any kind are sort of an easy way for people to be introduced into any cuisine. Because I can't think of a single cuisine that doesn't have some form of dumpling. It's a great way to, to start. Anyway, we have had three different kinds on our menu for since we've opened the same three ones. There's a something called Siberian pelmeni, which are a mixture of uh, beef, pork, and veal. And then there are two different kinds of vareniki, sour cherry and varog, which is a type of farmer's cheese. We do ours a little bit on the savory side. Oftentimes you'll see those more traditionally. You might find them to be either neutral or a little on the sweet side. More recently, when we opened in the new location, we added a fourth skew. Right now we're doing a... And I'm kind of sad to get rid of it. I haven't had a chance. I haven't wanted to take it off yet, but in theory, it's supposed to change. That's a potato dumpling with a caviar beurre blanc on top. Kind of hard to let go of it. <laughs> I mean, th those dumplings are absolutely delicious. I mean, I and I, I discovered like I didn't know anything about the sour cherry variety, and this this is phenomenal. <laughs> that's that's Thank really you. good. <laughs> As a young girl, the sour cherry vareniki were ones that my mom would always buy at the Russian market and have in our freezer. And that was like something that when I was like a teenager, if they were going out, you know, I could, that's something that I could make myself. So that was like a favorite thing. It feels like you're cheating. It doesn't feel like a real meal because it's just um, fruit with dough. So as you know, like that was what I would make myself and I used to love it very much. That was, that's one when I taste, I mean, I like my version better, but when I was working on that, that was like very much inspired by that memory.
so where is your then inspiration come from? You're talking about being inspired, you know, with this product that your mom was buying and that's your memory of it and so on. So is the goal to have, you know, an execution of dishes that are mimicking like the, the real food, the real experience that's, you know, that's, uh, you know, from the time during the Soviet Union? Or are you allowing yourself to have like little tweak now and there? Yeah, absolutely. I think I like to use the word reverence. I think reverence is very important. So to just say, oh, you know, sour cherry, vareniki, that's sour cherries and flour, water, egg. I'm going to take all those ingredients and now make something totally different. It doesn't represent, I mean, it doesn't look or reflect that at all. I'm going to dehydrate the cherries and I'm going to take that, I'm going to make a cracker instead. And I'm going to take the butter that you dress it with and powder it. You know, I, that's not to me the essence of the dish. That's not, that's not how you would enjoy it. And so I don't like to change things in that way. I think that that could be a really interesting cerebral exercise, but that's not what I think we're here for, for, you know, for what I do. I view it more like, um, I don't know, I, and I think we've talked about this before, but I view this as a design problem. So I have this dish that I know that I grew up with and I liked it, but there were problems with it. I identify what those problems are. For example, you know, in those dumplings, the cherries are always fresh cherries and as or and, and you know fresh sour cherries have a sort of wateriness to them and they're just in their nature so you're never going to really cut and then you throw it in boiling water and so now you're just adding even more water to it and so as much as you want i remember as a teenager just thinking like wow why is this i want this cherry to be more cherry you know or the dough the dough can be very thick depending on how it's shaped and how what tool you use to make them you can end up with really sort of thick parts, sort of clumpy, thick, knotted parts of dough. So, you know, the solution to that is there's a specific kind of dumpling maker that if you use that, you don't end up with any knots. It's all like uh, cinched evenly. If I make sure that people are using a certain thickness of dough, then we avoid that problem. I can use really delicious dehydrated sour cherries and rehydrate them in sour cherry syrup and make filling out of that. And so I'm still totally 100% honoring the dish. It still looks like what it is. It still has all the same bells and whistles, but it just tastes like more concentrated cherry, but it is what it is. So in that case, like you're just, you know, and the other, the other one with dumplings specifically is you normally, when you order them and you go to someone's house, they just give you a bowl of dumplings. And then on the side, there'll be a pat of butter, a little bowl, or maybe a pitcher of vinegar of salt maybe and you just put whatever you want in your bowl well i'm i know that if i emulsify butter in the wet dumplings that it'll make a delicious buttery coating and it makes its own sauce and i know this as a chef so why wouldn't i do that why would i not dress your dumplings for you which is a silly thing it seems obvious but yet nobody ever does that they always serve them dry and i will season the amount of vinegar in there that i think is appropriate right yeah, it's a design problem. What's wrong with it as it is? Because there's always, nothing is ever totally perfect. And if it is, then I don't touch it, you know, and then I'll just, then I'm, why, why mess with it? You know, being French, I, I love rabbit and I, you have a delicious dish on your menu that I love, like this is the, uh, the rabbit in a clay pot. So can you talk to us a little bit of the inspiration behind that dish? Rabbit in a clay pot's a very, very traditional Belarusian dish. 
in Belarus and in Russia too. There's uh, so sour cream is used as a first of all, sour cream is not like what sour cream is here. Sour cream here isn't really sour cream. It's a whole. It's it's basically Frankenstein food. Real sour cream is, is this cream that's been thickened and cult- or, cult- or thickened by culture. Is it the smetana? Yeah, so smetana, I mean, we use cultures to make it like smetana. Every a lot of places have. I mean, there's crumb fresh, right, which is a little bit sweeter. But every culture has this. Real, America once had sour cream too. So, but it's just more like industrialized sour cream, and not really American. But industrialized sour cream isn't real, so you can't necessarily do the same thing with that. But if you have some sort of real cultured sour cream, it's then like a sauce. You know, you can use it for everything. In Russia, one of the things that people do is they braisen it. Very, very common to braise in sour cream. Rabbit in a clay pot is traditionally just rabbit that's braised in sour cream, and that's really what it is in its essence. And you serve it with potato cakes, and that's it. I wanted to throw tons of garlic in there, and tons of cherries, and tons of porcinis. I just wanted to sort of make it heady with these competing strong flavors, which are all traditional to Belarus: sour cherries, porcinis, and garlic. And so I just infused it with more of any one of those things that most people would think is normal to do. And we serve it with all of those components. So there's chunks of porcini, roasted garlic, like whole roasted garlic cloves and sour cherries. Because it's all these sort of unexpectedly like heavy amounts of each of those things, and but they're all in check with each other. So it's like if you just had a ton of garlic and nothing else to, to compete with it, you know, it wouldn't do the same thing, right? And the same thing with the cherries, right? They're to be too sweet. But you have all, there's a, such an intense amount of all of them that they kind of keep each other in check. But the inspiration for the dish was, um, I was asked by Food and Wine to do a recipe for spring. So that's kind of where this came from. I, I wrote the recipe for Food and Wine based on like, it was springtime and this, these are, this is what I wanted to have. And I don't remember the exact, maybe it was February at the time that I was writing it for, maybe, maybe January. They responded back saying that they loved it, but they couldn't publish it with rabbit. Because <laughs> I was thinking of that. <laughs> they asked me if they could do it with chicken. So they, I mean, you can find it. There's a recipe on Food and Wine with it in five. And I was so angry that they did that, that I was like, well, fine, I'm going to put it on my menu then. <laughs> so um, I did it on the menu. And I, unfortunately, we can't take it off. I mean, I, I've tried to, and my husband got very angry with me because I was so sick of it. <laughs> and we took it off the menu. And people were people were like, upset they'd come in and want it. Okay, good. That was my next question. I was thinking that other people... Uh, Really like uh, enjoying the dish because uh, you know there's a lot of uh, you know rejection because it's it's rabbit. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's. Uh, I don't. I mean, I don't. I hope there's no rejection, but I hope that somebody would tell me. No, it's it's one that we sell a lot of. It's very popular, and people come in just for it. And yeah, it's it's great. It's just funny for me. I was actually in my first trimester with my second child when I was writing that recipe. And at the time, you know, no big deal. But then when we put it on the menu, I would walk in in the mornings and there would be this smell, this strong smell, smell of roasted garlic in the kitchen. And just that happened to be something that would make me nauseous in my first trimester. It just, so anyway, so I had to suffer through it through my entire pregnancy. And so even now when I smell my prep cooks working on it in the morning, I will like be reminded of being pregnant and being miserable. <laughs> so it's like, it's, uh, <laughs> like haunting me, but it's okay. I don't mind. You can mention that to your kid now. 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's, not, he's only two now. Oh, so okay. maybe a bit wait, too early. wait till he's a little older to start serving him. Yeah. Keep it on the menu then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So another thing which I've found uh, very interesting, and uh, and uh, I, I learned that from like reading the, your your book Kashka, which is an outstanding cookbook, that grilling is another very interesting common point with uh, you know with uh, the the tradition of grilling here in the U.S. This is something that was part of like different countries, of course, from the former Soviet Union, and then you have but different tools. So you. The grill, you call it mangal, and then you have the shampuri that are, I think, like the skewers, correct? So can you explain like the differences though that exist between your type of grilling with the one, you know, that uh, people in the U.S. know? The device is called a mangal. It is like a sort of a, a trough almost, a long skinny box that you put your coals in, and you balance skewers across the top, and the skewers are called shampuri. And they are usually flat, like broad, because you can sh then you can like sort of shape farces around it. If it's flat, it, it gives it more surface area to stick to. Or like you can skewer a whole fish because if it's a broad skewer, it has, again, something to hold on to. There's sometimes people will do like pieces and it does come more from the caucuses. But during the Soviet Union, that became popular everywhere. And to this day, I mean, if you go to Belarus in the summer... You know, people are, my uncle always, or my, I guess my dad's cousin, the exact relation, but he complains. He's like, I'm sick of Mongol. I like, you know, we have it every night. It's pervasive. It's everywhere now. It's a thing throughout the Soviet Union. But yeah, the, the idea of, of skewering and grilling on an open flame rather than on a grate, I guess, is the biggest way to think about it. And there's also like a heavy use of marinade a lot of the time, like strong marinades. Like a lot of the times you'll see recipes where it's straight, like you marinate and straight vinegar overnight, like 24 hours. Like you'll see like lamb, for example, marinated for 24 hours in vinegar and onion. That's it. Almost denatures the proteins. And so it's interesting. It's like a, it's a very, very strongly flavored style of grilling, which is cool. I, I like it a lot. And this is the technique that you are using in, in your restaurant, correct? For some of the dishes that you have, okay. Yeah, we have, so we built a whole, at the new restaurant, we built like a whole hearth for making a mangalin. So we have a whole section of skewers now. I was fascinated when we talked at your restaurant of that the, the story that you and your husband are bringing or brought your staff and I think that you're organizing another trip and, uh, to Belarus to experience really like the country and the, the meeting the people and obviously the ingredients and the, and the food. So can you explain to us why you have you organized such a, a, a trip, you know, for part of your, of your team? There's not a lot of people doing that. We're two major factors. One is I am constantly thinking about how working in restaurants is, is hard. It's hard. It's not very high paying. Just like, margins are so tight in restaurants and people who do it, do it, you know, a lot of times out of passion. But anything I can do to give back, I, I try to. And so this was for us like a way that we could thank people that had been working for us so hard. And so that was a big part of it. And then the other part that's sort of, you know, more for the restaurant is there really aren't a lot of resources for the cuisine to learn about it. If I have a French restaurant and I want my staff to learn about French food, there are so many different places I can direct them without ever leaving Portland. 
a lot of times without even leaving the the comfort of their own couch. You know, there's a lot of stuff on the internet. There's just not the same level of information for Russian and Belarusian and all that. We wanted to just take people there because in many ways, we have to be the source of that information. That's, I mean, that's why we wrote the cookbook. Same thing, there hadn't been a book published in the US in almost 30 years on the subject. 30 years. Since the information isn't there, we have to, we have to be the one to give it to people. And so taking some staff to the source was part of that. I mean, you see it, the cooks we have who are still with us that went there obviously use that, but really the way that servers and bartenders speak to guests, instead of being able to say, yeah, you know, I was told that this is a traditional dish. They can say, I know that this was a traditional dish because I, I had it in, you know, somebody's house in Barisov or something like that. And so that giving people that knowledge was, is really great. And you can see the light behind their eyes when they talk to guests. And that's, that's so important too. And was it a good tool as well for, for you to, um, you know, to, to retain people uh, working at the restaurants? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't have any numbers. I, I can't say, you know, exactly what our retention rate is and all of that. But it, I feel like it is. I want to continue doing it. We, we did it. I mean, this was more like an experiment. We're like, what would happen? What would happen if? We, our, the only rule was you had to have been, there was a, we asked for, I think, $500. And that's it. Everything else we covered. So we said, if you give me $500 and you give it to me by this date, and you are currently working at the restaurant at the time that we go, then that's it. That's the only requirement. You could have been here for a month. You could be here for, you know, for four years. It's all the same. Like, just if you want to come, you come. So it ended up being 50% of our staff that went. So uh, the total, including my parents that came with us and my kids, it ended up being 24 people. It's really cool, but it was also really challenging. I'm not a, I'm not a travel agent. And that was part of it too. We were like, well, you know, let's just see so that we know in the future. I definitely think that that was too big and I don't want it to be such a big trip in the future. But other than that, everything else about it was great. And so we're talking about how we're going to, how we can do that in a different way next time. And we're talking about doing it this summer. As I mentioned to you, when we saw each other, if you have an extra seat and you can um, send me, <laughs> send me <laughs> an email. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We're almost at the end of the discussion here, Chef, but I have five uh, rapid fire questions for you. Okay. So uh, where do you eat in Portland or you have a drink where you are off the clock? Coquine. I love Coquine. My favorite restaurant. Can you give uh, us like three dishes that you could not live without cooking or eating? Tomatoes with mayonnaise and like any sort of soft bread or a biscuit in the summer, of course, when tomatoes are perfect. Tomatoes and mayonnaise sandwiches. Unbelievable. Any ice cream. <laughs> I, there has to be ice cream in my life. And I, I guess anything with a French omelet, honestly, that's always wild. What are like the main misconceptions that uh, people have about uh, vodka and caviar? Together or each separately? No, separately. Sorry. So vodka that it can't have you can't talk about it in like an intellectual way that it just like to, meant to just go down quickly, but it has a lot of characteristics to it. You can taste differences, you know? I think that's the biggest misconception. Caviar, man, there's so many. It's hard to pick just 
one, but I think probably my biggest one is that it has to be served ice cold. It drives me crazy when I see it served on crushed ice. You know, everything tastes better closer to room temperature. And if you're spending that much money, why would you want it to be numbingly cold? So serve it at room temperature. I mean, obviously you want to store it in the refrigerator, but when you're serving it, you should actually spend some time letting it come to room temperature so you can taste it more. And beside uh, the cookbook Kashka, what is your other favorite cookbook? <laughs> I The Joy of Cooking, probably. It's super dated and all that, but I, go, I reference it all the time. Thank you very much, Chef, uh, to be uh, on the show Flavors Unknown. It was a real, real pleasure to, to have you. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening today. No worries if you were not able to write down some information that our guest was talking about, because you can find all of those in the episode show note on flavorsunknown.com. And if you are enjoying the show, please leave a review or a rating as it helps other people to find it as well. If you have friends that are foodies, please send this podcast their way as I am always happy to have more people listening. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.